I've made up my mind Don't need to think it over If I'm wrong, I am right Don't need to look no further This ain't last I know This is love If I tell the world I'll never say enough Cause it was not said to Exactly what I need to do if I end up with you. Should I give up or should I just keep chasing pavements? Even if it leads nowhere, I wouldn't be aware. Even if I knew my best, should I leave it there? Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And today, Bill, we're doing guilt, right? Right. We're going to talk about guilt. Actually, one of our listeners suggested us do this. Uh, Marie, thank you for this suggestion. And um, prior, when we were getting ready for this podcast, we both called each other names, but I don't feel guilty about Neither it. Neither do I. Not at all. So we're not talking about that kind of guilt. But I do want to inflict guilt on our listeners, uh, especially for the vegans and vegetarians. <laughs> The, uh, Walk carefully here. Researchers have found, this is actually not brand new. This is um, a year and a half ago or so. Researchers have found that plants know they're being eaten. So vegetarians and vegans pay heed. Plants, the research shows that plants know they're being eaten and they don't like it. Okay, how do they How do they know? Well, the, this was carried out on the Thales Crest or Arab Bidopsis, as it's known scientifically, <laughs> uh, which is would something. Spell, would you spell that for our list? I'm curious. T H A L E. So this is uh, basically it's one of the it's closely related to broccoli, kale. Actually, my wife Lindy is in this residence making soup out of kale, so I'm participating. Right. Well, in it the actually, guilt. smells good. It does smell good. And I had a kale salad for lunch, so I am a. Cook. We're all implicated. Yeah. So basically, they they take audio vibrations, like when. When a caterpillar is munching on a plant, on right. this plant, the plant knows and emits higher levels of toxic mustard stuff. And then other vibrations that are not like munching, they don't do it. Uh, so it's so, like so they make their own mustard dressing for the kale as they're as they're dying. The kale makes its own mustard dressing. Yeah. So basically, this is an attempt at a defense mechanism because it knows. So every vegan that smugly looks at people at Barclay Steakhouse or whatever feel the guilt because that plant. Does not want to be your dinner. <laughs> Just saying. Wow. You know, I did I did not know we were going to start on this direction. But at any rate, so uh, it, it was interesting that um, in conjunction with our, I guess, a podcast before last on, on loss, uh, that what it means to experience loss, that this idea of guilt was something that... Um, that this person associated with it, which makes which makes sense, because there are some losses that we have that we feel guilty about that uh, we did something or something happened that um, that that we feel guilty about, or it could be some of that even that free floating guilt. Maybe we need to define some of our guilt because 
Well, I do think, yeah, I've always said that if you feel guilty because you've done something wrong, that's a good thing. I mean, this is kind of simplistic. But if you still feel guilty for something that you've been forgiven of or guilty for something that you haven't really done anything wrong, that's not healthy guilt. The great Frank Lake would call that neurotic guilt. Right. I don't know what the new DSM would call it. I probably wouldn't call it anything, but I think you're right. It's a, it's that kind of free-floating guilt. You know, sorry that I exist. Uh, uh, there's a great old Neil Diamond song, you know, feeling I've done somebody wrong somewhere, but I don't know where or when. So that we, we feel this guilt, but we can't actually put either a source or an action um, that directly merits this kind of feeling that we have. By the way, we seem to do well with intangible nouns as topics. Happiness, loss, friendship. What does that say about us? I don't know, but I like intangible nouns as names. Although they're all so positive, like charity or hope or grace. Just one time I want to meet someone that says, hi, I'm Pestilence. <laughs> you know, like intangible nouns are funny. I like them a lot, but I just sometimes it's, it's just like fortune cookies. I feel like I just want to open one that says, your life has taken a three turns for the worst, and you're never going to recover. Right. They're always so positive. Yeah, in bed. In bed, right? <laughs> in bed. Well, um, we are both um, religious professionals. We're both pastors. And frankly, we spend a lot of time both liturgically um, uh, every week, you know, one way or the other, dealing with guilt. And then certainly we're entering into... Um, Holy Week, and in the Christian tradition, well, and actually, you know, in the Jewish and Christian tradition, we're coming into the time of Passover and things like that. So there's this idea of of making amends or guilt offerings. Yeah. You know, I came across a story recently. Hat tip Ethan Richardson, Mockingbird, thank you for this. Uh, he brought it to my attention a few weeks ago. NPR did a story on Robert Ebling who was an engineer for Martin Thiokol, uh, who was a NASA contractor who worked on the Challenger. And he and four others pleaded for the launch to be delayed. Right. I remember reading this, yeah. Yeah, they anticipated the failure, that, the precise failure that would destroy the shuttle and kill its occupants. Um, Ebling was not identified until a few weeks ago, um, and he retired soon after the Challenger right. accident. He suffered deep depression, has never had the feeling of guilt kind of lift over him. Did um, he, didn't he die? Isn't that how some of this came out? Uh, I don't think he died, no. But, but it's interesting because after that story, it, he was flooded with communications from people largely trying to so you, give you, him some sense of absolution. Because uh, he really did uh, – he really did um, – plead a case strongly. I mean, he, and he, they said no. And his, he says, um, and he's a religious man. I, he lives in Utah. I, he says he believes in God. Maybe he's Mormon. I'm not sure. Utah statistically, uh, high odds. Uh, and the NPR report said a religious man, this is something he has prayed about for the past 30 years. I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. Ebling says softly, he shouldn't have picked me for the job. But next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? You picked a loser. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. People, there are people who, who do take on 
maybe an over sense of responsibility for things. And then we are surrounded by people who do not take responsibility and don't seem to experience any kind of guilt. Well, it's funny because one of the other engineers kind of took that posture. I mean, when he's been, he said, look, I mean, I did everything. I, I, I protested. I, I did everything I could. You know, it's not, a, it's not my, I mean, he seems to feel uh, if, if, if Ebling feels probably over entangled in it and can't shake it, this guy seems a, a little too disentangled, maybe. But yeah. who am I to judge? I mean, I don't know what's in his head or heart, but I think it's it is interesting though how two people who were involved in the same incident and were both, you know, protesting the the launch and got vetoed react to that in very different ways. Well, okay, so as as Christians, we believe that um, God uh, and the person of the Holy Spirit or however our conscience and the Spirit work together, that when we feel guilty for something we've done wrong, that that's a constructive thing. I mean, in other words, it gives us an opportunity to try to make things right uh, with others, but primarily to come to God and say, you know what, I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. Uh, and that we believe as Christians, when we ask for that, um, we are given it. So one of the things that's always fascinated me over the years of doing a lot of pastoral care and spiritual direction and counseling is how many people who devoutly believe what I just said there, you know, are 100% sure of what I said was true and are racked with guilt for things they've asked God for forgiveness and sometimes have asked other people for forgiveness. Yeah, I think there are different kinds of people in Christian churches. There's one kind of people that they're there because it's sort of ethnically, culturally, you know, this is part of the story. But they squeam when they hear the stories of, uh, you know, of, the, of people getting forgiven or Jesus tells stories about wage, like laborers being hired at different ends of the day and they all get paid the same. And they just, it, it irks them, you know, they never... It, then there are other people who they like those stories for other people. Right. They like the if they watch Les Miserables or they read a story about a guy like Bob Ebling who actually makes the turn and experience, they like it. And it, it actually gives them genuine hope, but they just don't believe it's true for them. Right. Well, but, you know, I think then they don't really, they don't really believe it. Because, you know, there's a sense where, and I think, you know, that's a different kind of, I mean, there's the pride where I don't need forgiveness, all right, which is the kind of hubris that you don't, you don't get mercy then. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of, there's some pretty scary, uh, there's some scary, we talked about scary Jesus the last, uh, the last podcast. There are some pretty scary Jesus sayings about people who don't, who don't see the need for mercy, um, but I also think those kind of people that you just described are folks who haven't, it's a different kind of, I want to say it's a different kind of pride. It's the pride of not letting go. In other words, there are many people who find guilt as a wonderful companion, a wonderful, awful companion, uh, who stay in a very dysfunctional relationship with their guilt. Because it's, on some levels, it, it's something that they own. It's uh and a lot of times these people who are folks who kind of were raised a certain way that they could never do enough, 
Um, I think that's where a lot of guilt comes from. That you know, the, the neurotic guilt, as you, as you quoted Lake, uh, people who, for some way or the other, got the message, you just don't quite um, make the grade. Now, sometimes it can be really horrible, uh, but I'm not talking about those horrible, abusive kind of home situations. I think a, a lot of religious people who who never quite feel forgiven are people that are driven uh, and there's a lot of unconscious um, stuff that pushes them and drives them that uh, doesn't even allow the, you know, the, the grace and the God that they believe in. I, these are people who have some, I would even call, you know, these are extreme Christians in terms of their theology, but somehow God's mercy doesn't trickle down to them. And the fact that it doesn't apply to them is just a different version of, of the arrogant person who says they don't need forgiveness. Yeah, I think there's also a sense of, you know, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, look, you've heard it said, you know, don't murder. But I tell you, if you get angry at your brother, you've committed it. You say, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look lustfully. So he's saying that, like, I think that our culpability is goes beyond action to intention. It goes beyond ex- execution to disposition. So there's, on some level, like, I think that people create a morality for themselves that wouldn't indict them at that level. That like, So generally, it's, it's sort of how, like, when somebody else does something, how could they have done that? Right. When you've done it, well, of course there's mitigating reasons I've done the same thing. So I think that what happens is there's, like, a self-justifying project right. that sort of you make a morality that, that you score fairly well on to make the grade. So the reason, like, you you can't feel guilt because your own self-justifying system would mean that your system is flawed right? and that you're really culpable and you really would be one of those people that needed mercy. So you kind of, like, you, you, you wind up... I remember I, I served a church once as an intern and the prayers of confession made me feel better about myself. Like... Lord, we've done so much, but we can do more. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> these self-esteem our, our, projects. Lord, Lord, forgive us for not thinking more highly of ourselves. Right, right, right. I mean, these things are are are, are just like, it, it, it's sort of a, a means of, and that kind of sort of self-justification warped affirmation actually, I think, leads you far, far, far from what's actually really, I mean, Jesus with the, the scandalous woman who, comes into the religious leader's house while Jesus is is dining and you know does you know wipe puts oil on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair and and, and the religious leader is scandalized and and Jesus says like you've been kind of an ambiguous host to me but look what she did right. and yes i know what kind of woman she is but you know who do you think loves most the one's forgiven much or one that's forgiven little right. the one who's forgiven so the one who's forgiven much Loves much. Yeah, and in that story in Luke 7, Jesus is trying to, um, and it's Simon, is the, the household, the, the guy holding the party's name, Simon. So yeah. he's trying to get Simon to say, listen, maybe you need to reevaluate what you need to do. Yeah, I, I like what you say there. I mean, I've always joked we all have our own personal Ten Commandments, and they tend to be ten things that we can usually do. <laughs> right. It's like the joke, you know, like Moses comes down the mountain, look. I got him from 118 to 10. That's the good news. What's the bad news? I couldn't get him to budge in adultery. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, so that's the person who kind of trains their conscience to feel all right. But I think there are people who 
um, who feel that whether it's up, it's God or my mom or my dad or, you know, a teacher or whatever, that I, I never can quite measure up. And I think a lot of that kind of morality, that's, that's where in some levels you take someone else's system of measurement and it gets put on your, on your soul. And I, you know, again, uh, it's funny people talk about, you know, Catholic guilt, Jewish guilt, uh, Irish guilt. And eventually I, I one time someone was saying that to me, I go, yeah, maybe it's just like human, human guilt. And there's, you know, there's various ethnic and religious, uh, um, dimensions of it, but I, I grew up in, uh, some, uh, around some pretty extreme Protestantism. And, uh, there were some people who seemed to have a wonderful cottage industry and trying to make us feel as bad as we could. Fortunately, those people never, I never had one of those guys as a pastor, but, um, but there certainly is versions of Christianity, even as we're, you know, sometimes the way the cross is you know, is presented that really is going for the fact of to make us feel as bad as possible. Um, and I think if you just feel bad in general uh, and feel guilty in general, uh, that's that's a hard thing to, you know, what do you ask for forgiveness? I think that's the kind of guilt that, uh, and whether it's produced by a religious system or by a by the way a family system is raised, there's something inherently uh, wrong in, in that in that way of, of of thinking that really prevents you from flourishing as a child of God under grace. Yeah, it's interesting. Frankly, the great Christian psychiatrist said that that the Christian faith is no more interested in condemning immorality than it is on esteeming morality like in the sense of we, we wouldn't we would neither right. the only reason it's interested he thinks the pastoral counselor or the clinician is interested in in certain immoral action is that they can be the occasion to experience forgiveness and healing and hope uh it, you know but it's not like you're particularly incensed any more than you'd be particularly excited by the moral perfectionism you know of, right. of the uptight crowd like the, the that the nature of god's redemptive uh, act in the cross of Christ, he thinks, is to get beyond this binary camp of the unrighteous and the righteous. Because like, you can get lost breaking the rules, and you can get lost keeping the rules. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like the parable of the prodigal son, they're both lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the, the prodigal son, the one who runs off, is lost because he is an antinomian. He, he lives a totally um, sensual life. Um an antinomian, is that someone who doesn't like gnomes? Yeah. They, yard gnomes? We, yeah, and I'm, I'm one of those. I'm totally against yard gnomes. Yeah. They are creepy. <laughs> and then the brother, who is the good, moral, upstanding brother, and the one thing they both have in common is neither of them know the father's love. Yeah. Based on their own actions. One on what he committed, you know, in terms of running off, and the other, what he, the other one because of what he omitted, failure to just understand the God was there loving, or the Father was loving him the whole time, but he was serving out of kind of a, a, a begrudgingly servitude or anger towards his brother. We don't know his motivation. Yeah, I, and I think that those those kind of stories, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've been reading this book about parables by Robert Capon, who actually wrote an excellent cookbook, too, <laughs> that my wife is, I gave her for Christmas, that she, it really... Uh, 
after she read it, she's like, my knives are crap. And she went, what's your knives? And she, I mean, she's cooked some great dishes since she read it. But he talks about how, like, the parable of the lost sheep and and how basically a lost sheep is a dead sheep. Uh, and because it, it, it's helpless, it's got... So, I mean, on one level, I think one way to think about guilt and our own moral failings and our own sense of you know, of distress and despair about that is that we're sick, right? And if we're, if someone's sick, you know, you think, well, you know, how sick are you? Why didn't you go to the hospital? Why didn't you go to the doctors? Why didn't you get the right treatment? How'd you get here? You know, what about your diet? Whereas more often than not, the New Testament doesn't say we're sick. It says we're dead. We need right. to be raised. Like we're, we're beyond a, a place where, it's in our own hands to create a wellness plan. Like, we don't need good advice. We need good news that, that God is the God who raises the dead. It's like right. that passage in Ezekiel, you know, where God shows the dry bones, the prophet, and can these dry bones yet live? I mean, right. it's, not, it's not a patient that's going downhill. It, you know, the, 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 it's been called. <laughs> you know, the, that so the death has been, the death strip has been signed. And now we're, we're free to be resurrected and live posthumously. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that um, Romans, you know, Paul's letter to the Romans, you know, chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those are, that are in Christ. And the truth of the matter, I, you could argue that all the, the call to live righteously in the Hebrew Scriptures is a call to live under, you know, the the covenant of, of grace that God has made with, with his people. And that the reason you have a, an annual day of atonement is to take seriously your sins, but you're forgiven of those sins. Yeah. You take. So this idea of forgiveness of sins is really, is throughout the, the Judeo Christian story. It's in our text. And, and I, I would say it's something that we, you know, constantly fight against. Um, you know, as I stop, you know, as, I, as you think about, okay, how do we get out of sort of whatever cycle you're in? If you're someone who kind of feels perpetually guilty, you know, I, I would say one thing. If, there, if there's a particular act that you have, have committed or there's something that's gone wrong, then I think if you true, feel true contrition, which is a great old uh, idea of that, I'm truly sorry for what I have done. And so if, there, if there's something that you can actually identify, okay, that, that you feel deeply sorry for, then that's... That's a healthy spiritual kind of, of, of guilt. And, but the only good thing about that guilt, from God's perspective, is that it should drive you to a point on, for you to, to receive mercy for that. And, and there's you know, certainly uh, lots of ways for that to happen, uh, to, to experience the grace of God that we believe has come to us through the mercy that we have in Christ. So if you can identify something that you have done that you haven't truly asked for forgiveness first to God, uh, and then, if possible, other the person that you harmed, then then whatever you're feeling guilty about is something that you know we've identified as something that's outside the religious realm. You know, I think it's interesting in, in Genesis chapter three, God doesn't invent shame; humans invent shame. Yeah, yeah. Who who told you you were naked? You know, God. I, you know, and Adam and Eve are saying, "Well, we're ashamed. We don't want you to see us. We're naked." And God says, "Who told you you were naked? I didn't tell you were naked. That's yeah, you, you came up with that." And so I think, however, you need to begin to untwine that. And usually, we need help. I mean, if you're really bound by it, 
there's a, you know, the idea you have to come alive. I like that idea of resurrection. Your sense of self in many ways has to be, has to be renewed, resurrected in order for you to be kind of set free from that stuff. Yeah. This morning at our worship service, we talked about a story in the gospel of Luke in chapter 11, where it's right after Jesus instructs his disciples on how to pray. And he he gives them what we in the Christian tradition now call the Lord's Prayer. And then he tells the story about, you know, what if you go to a friend's house, you know, and because and you you pound on the door and say, "Look, you know, I've, uh, you know, I, I don't have, I've got guests, I don't have enough money, I can't feed them. Can you give me a few loaves of bread?" And you know, is the is the the friend's you know asleep and says, "Hey, go away," or, you know, uh, my children are in bed, the door's locked. And he says, but, you know, he, he won't, basically Jesus says, he won't help you <laughs> because uh, you have these legitimate reasons, but he'll help you because of your, and you could translate the word a few different ways. One way would be your shamelessness, mm-hmm. right? And there are two kinds of shameless, right? There's a kind of shameless where it's, it, we say that person's shameless, and we really mean they can't be shamed because of an overly inflated ego, right? right? And they just, they don't care what anybody thinks, and they're... A danger, you know, to possibly their self and others because they they're impervious to the realities of anything around them. There's another kind of shameless that you've gone because you know I think Bonhoeffer says guilt is is about what you've done. Shame is about feeling bad about who you are. Like it's right. all the way to the core. When you can get so the guilt and shame journey goes so deep that you're really willing to come clean. You're really, because normally nobody's going to come over and say those reasons to their friend. Hey, I need your help because I'm kind of a mediocre host. I'm not really good at planning. I don't budget well and I need something for you. No, it's this, it's just a picture of somebody and Capon and his commentary on this is, it's very interesting because the Greek there, you know, is, is used for resurrection, rising up a lot, sleep and rising, death and rising. It says it's almost a, a picture of the sacrament that's closest to death for us, sleep, where we just all of a sudden lose control and slip away from consciousness. And it's almost like saying the only thing that wakes the sleeping God is to rise uh, for the shameless, the truly shameless, and to rise them, raise them up with his son. Mm. Uh, and it, I, it's a beautiful take on that parable. But He says the real prayer is not, the thing that matters is not, God, get my kid in this college or get me to this. Not that it's bad to be petition God or, you know, I'd like this job or I'd like, you know, my arm to feel better or whatever. But the real prayer that is guaranteed to be answered is the shameless acknowledgement that we're dead and mm. dead, not just to our, you know, self delusions and dreams, but also dead to the reality of the broken parts of our story and that, and that we can be raised like the dry bones. Yeah, that's 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 beautiful. Um, I uh, w- went to a spiritual director years ago, uh, and we basically it did a kind of Anglican spiritual direction confession. So you do it face to face. But he uh, at the end, when he would uh, pray for me and give me absolution, he used the old Roman Missal and the line he always ended the prayer with, and pray also for me a sinner. Mm. And which was really powerful for me in that moment. And so, um, and, the, you know, the, my church uh, and many of your churches, you have a prayer of confession. I always say we have a prayer of confession every week because uh, 
we need it. And uh, and so one Sunday morning, just spontaneously, you know, in in the tradition I was at, they don't really have they don't really give you absolution, assurance of pardon. But I, I've been so moved by that experience after I said, and you are forgiven. And I said, pray also for me, a sinner. Mm. And I have said that. Say that I've said that every week since then that I do that, and it became, and it was interesting. That was one of the most powerful things for people. Now there was this one person who was kind of crazy one time, made an appointment, and and uh, and was talking and said, "Now, what do you, what exactly do you want us to forgive you?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "That's above your pay grade." So. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I think that the idea is that, you know, um, I think for me recognizing that there's mercy. And and that mercy is not just this kind of nice nebulous term, but it it, it was a bleeding mercy, and um, and that I I needed to be forgiven, and that that cost the universe something. You know, when I, my my when I when I do something wrong, either or when I fail to do something right, you know, I injure the universe in some ways. I don't just injure the people around me or myself. I injure the universe, and that you know, as Christians, we kind of believe that there had to be something on a cosmic scale done to, to do something about all of us who have injured the universe and, and have been injured by uh, those in the universe. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, uh, we're, I mean, that's the belief in the, in the power of it. And we've talked before how there's some, the cross offends certain contemporary sensibilities. Well, it's offended sensibilities in every time and place. But I think that, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I think, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. And I think the real, the real moving past the disabling guilt is if in the suffering servant, you can see the cosmic cost, but that's not the final world word. Yeah. It's not just a no to the breach. It's a yes um, to resurrection. Yeah, but sometimes we have to feel the sting of the death in order to feel the joy of the resurrection and realize uh, that, that 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 guilt has been taken care of and that it's up, you know, it's up to us to say yes to the gift. And if you're having trouble saying yes to the gift, find a good guide who can help you do that. Yeah. Or watch Redbeard. <laughs> yeah, that would be the recommendation of our dear friend Paul Saul. Right. I think I'll stick with go with the good guide. Oh, but if you can't get a good guide, watch that. But I think uh, Redbeard Red. subtitles. <laughs> but no, I think in some levels this is, in many ways, this is the religious issue. I mean, most people who care enough to hang around um, are people who, are on some levels or the other, looking for the freedom that you know I think ultimately comes from the mercy of God. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole the old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember 
everything What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all Oh, wait.